again, friends, and welcome back to Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. I'm Bob Kaler, and we're continuing our look at some of the talks that were given at the WCA Global Gathering in Montgomery, Alabama, at Fraser Memorial United Methodist Church on May 1st, a little earlier this past spring. And one of the talks that really leapt out at me as I was sitting there in Alabama was the talk given by Eric Huffman. I'd never met Reverend Eric Huffman before. He's the lead pastor at the Story Church in Houston. But his story is a powerful one, and his address to the to the global gathering was also very powerful. It was an address titled, Conflict, the Council at Jerusalem. And he talks about the inevitable disagreements that crop up among committed followers of Christ. And Eric is a prolific writer and podcaster himself. You can check out his podcast, Maybe God, his devotional book, 40 Days of Doubt, and his most recent work, Scripture and the Skeptic. He received his undergraduate degree in religious studies from Centenary College in Shreveport, Louisiana, and a Master of Divinity from St. Paul's School of Theology in Kansas City. Eric uh, has an incredible story, and I had a chance to catch up with him after his talk. And so stay tuned after his talk to hear from him a little bit more about him and about his passion for ministry and and his incredible background that enables him to reach those who may be skeptics or who are on the margins. Good afternoon, everybody. It's not a good sign. I'm already in tears. And it's not because of that. It's uh, just the grace of God. Have you ever been moved by the grace of God and just felt entirely unworthy, entirely unworthy of any of his good gifts? Because Lord knows with my actions and thoughts and words in the past, I've led just as many people astray as I have led to them. And yet he lets me be here standing in front of y'all instead of striking me down with lightning i mean there's still time but hopefully hopefully i'm in i'm okay but but i'm not sure i should be but for the grace of god and that's what i celebrate today this is my first wca affiliated event ever i uh i was steeped in a in a very um uh, progressive liberal whatever word we're using these days um form of methodism uh, educated in a very liberal uh, Methodist seminary. I've been told for most of my life that you people were the enemy, that you have horns. I, I've been looking, like, where are their horns? And you seem really nice. I don't know. So Jesus got a hold of me a few years back in the Holy Land, and I don't even know what he's doing with me, and I'm, I'm scared to death, but also just safe in his arms, and uh, I'm really grateful to be here. I think we can all agree it's been a, a rough year uh, for many, many reasons, right? Not even Methodist ones, but, <laughs> but uh, all of our struggles notwithstanding, it's been a rough year with COVID and everything else, all the struggles and economic trials and delays and all the deaths and the grief and everything. And add to that the, the pain we've felt as Methodists who really just want to live at peace with one another again and get back to the business of of the church again it's been such a struggle and i know many of us have have really wrestled with whether or not we can just keep doing this do we want to keep fighting do we want to stick in this and and is it going to be worth it and it can be really hard these days to be a united methodist um for for all of us 
But you know, on the way here uh, in the airport, as I waited in line, in the security line at the airport in Houston, there was a, a young woman in front of me, I think she was in her 20s, and uh, she had a couple of kids with her, and one of them was harnessed to her chest, brand new baby, uh, newborn, right? Harnessed to her chest and was sleeping at first, and I'll get to that in a second, but this baby was harnessed to her chest, and then she had a, like a, maybe an 18-month-old as well. I know, I know, I know, I know, and then I, I, I just got a little nosy. I looked on her finger for a ring. I didn't see a, a ring on her finger. I'm not judging her or anything. I don't know where daddy was, but like, it was clear to me she, she in that situation, was in that alone. Like she was in that situation on her own and the 18 the month old, the toddler was just sprawled out on the floor in the TSA line, full on tantrum and just sprawled out, not even helping with anything. Just, just laying there, squirming around on the security line. And, and, and you know, every parent here knows exactly what you're supposed to give a child like that, right? You're supposed to give them up. Okay, everybody 60 and over said spanking. Everybody 50 and under said iPhone, right? So to make matters worse, <laughs> to make matters worse, I overheard her saying to a TSA agent, I left my phone in one of those plastic bins and it was back on the other side of the scanners that we just walked through. And, and the TSA agent was just an incredibly unhelpful person or in a bad mood or something, maybe a Baptist, I don't know, but they were just <laughs> there saying you're going to have to go across the corridor with your kids to the lost and found and, and you know get your phone. And, and so she had to figure out a way to handle the situation where this infant was on her chest in a harness and her toddler in full-on like military-grade evasive maneuvers down there into a stroller and the baby's head is all flopping around and now the baby's awake and crying too. And, and you know, as, as that woman struggled through her day, I realized two things. The first thing I realized is her day's just beginning. She's about to get on a plane with these monsters and it's not gonna get easier. And the second thing I realized is being a United Methodist might be hard, but it's not that hard. Maybe I can stick with this just a little bit longer, if that's what it takes. I'm here today to talk about Christian conflict. Uh, Christian conflict. Y'all know anything about that? You know, a lot of people would say that those two words don't even go together, Christian and conflict. Uh, those are people that are not active in a church. Um, <laughs> but. <laughs> Christian conflict actually is as old as the church itself. It goes all the way back to the beginning. In Acts 15, we have the story of the Jerusalem Council, which is one of the first major rifts that we read about in the New Testament. Around 48 AD, church leaders gathered in Jerusalem to address an issue that was threatening to tear at the, the core or the fabric of the church. For 18 years, the church had been fundamentally a Jewish sect. It hadn't officially separated from Judaism, and most of the churches were basically just really weird Sunday school classes at the synagogue, and all the first Christians were Jews. And, uh, and so what was happening, as you all know, is, is the, the leadership was having some run-ins, interactions with Gentiles that looked and sounded and felt a lot like the conversions they had seen among the Jews who had come to Jesus. And so you had Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. You had, you, had, uh, you know, uh, Peter with the, the centurion in Acts 10. And, and you had Paul and Barnabas with their uh, evangelistic successes. And they were all starting to wonder if 
maybe they'd been wrong. If maybe they should change course, if maybe in the aftermath of the cross and an empty tomb, it's not only unnecessary, but even unbiblical at this point to continue requiring Gentiles who come to Jesus to become Jews first. And so what we have in Acts 15 is a case study in conflict management. And you all know when this conflict is over, we're still going to have conflicts, right? We'll just be mad at different people, right? So we got to we got to figure out how to do conflict well, or at least how to do it better than we have been in the United Methodist Church. And so what will conflict resolution look like? Now, when the leaders came together in Acts 15, they had a very specific agenda. And they, they took the church through four simple steps to resolve this conflict. And the first thing that the leadership did was such a gift to the church because they brought everyone together and they said, we must identify the issue. We must identify the issue at hand so that we have an agenda that sticks to that issue. And what was the issue at hand? They spell it out very clearly. In Acts 15, verses 1 and 2, it says, Should Gentiles who are coming to faith in God through Jesus Christ be forced to adhere to Mosaic law in order to be saved? I want you to remember that. In order to be saved. I'm going to circle back to that in just a moment. But what a gift it must have been to have leaders clearly identify the issue at hand. I'm envious. I'm envious. But I want us to keep that in mind as we move forward together because their clarity freed the council to move to the next step in the resolution process. And the next step involved listening to the insights of ministers on the front lines. What are the people in ministry with this issue saying? So who'd they listen to? First person they listened to was Simon Peter. Why was his witness so important? Because he had been on both sides of this particular issue. He wasn't an ideologue. He didn't have his heels dug in. He wasn't stuck in his ways. Peter had seen both sides of this issue, and he knew how people came to those conclusions they were coming to. And so Peter spoke to them about how the Gentiles were getting saved the same way the Jews were. He said, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. And next, Paul and Barnabas gave their witness, offered their testimony and insights and once the church leaders had identified the issue and listened to the insights, they were ready to, to take the most important step. And this is also, I think, the most oft-overlooked step in resolving our United Methodist conflicts. Y'all want to know what it is? You have your issue. You have your insights. The third and most important step is this, turning to the inspired word of God. You take your issue and you take your insights to the Word of God with no hesitation. And here's where we see this in Acts 15, verses 13 to 18. When they finished, when they, they finished testifying, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets, listen, who's he quoting? The words of the prophets in scripture, hint, hint, are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return. This is the voice of God speaking through the prophet. After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. And the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. Things known from long ago. 
what I want you to see here, what's so critical to see here, is that the church leaders modeled conflict resolution, the discipline here of, of resolving conflict, by taking the issue and the insights straight to scripture. They didn't take the issue and the insights at face value alone. They weren't just moved by the stories they were hearing from people. They, they weren't governed by sentimentality. They weren't swayed by, you know, the, the shifting sands of culture. In, in fact, it shouldn't be lost on us that but for the consistent call in Scripture, the consistent voice from Genesis to Malachi that they found, the voice of God saying the Gentiles are coming, the Gentiles will belong, my heart is for the Gentiles, they would have had no compelling reason to change the way they were doing things. They would not and should not have changed their way of doing things but for the scriptural references, the evidence in the Bible that agreed with the witnesses' testimonies. And it was the authority of scripture that led them to change their course. It was what they found, not just through the prophet Amos, who James was quoting in that passage, but they, started, they kept reading. They went all the way back to Genesis, where they found God telling, Father Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of how many nations? One? No. Two? No. Many, many, many nations. And not just nations where Jewish people are either. I'm coming for the Gentiles as well. And this is why the Christian leadership chose to change course. It wasn't because they felt like it was the right thing to do. It was because they were governed by a higher authority, which was found in Scripture. That's the reason why. So they found that, in fact, they had been wrong. By keeping the Gentiles at arm's length, they had been wrong because heart, God's heart was for the Gentiles, but it took the word to change their minds. It took the word. So they identified the issue. They listened to insights. They went to the inspired word of God. And fourth and finally, they offered this clear instruction. Verses 19 and 20, James speaking, it is, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So we United Methodists have been fighting about the same issue for years, decades, really, decades. We have been going back and forth about the issue, and I know everybody thinks the issue is, uh, is sexual ethics, and that's a presenting symptom of the issue. The issue is really what to do with the Bible, but we've been, we've, been, we've been fighting on this issue with no resolution at all. And the issue technically is, should we hold fast to the doctrine of our historic and apostolic faith, or should we shift with the, the culture and call just any old sexual orientation or sexual expression, as long as it's between consensual adults, good and, and holy, because that's what the world is doing. Should we hold fast or should we move? You know, I've listened to the insights of some in our church. I've listened intently from both sides. I've had this vantage point of being on both sides in my life. And I know how people come to the conclusions that they come to. I can tell you there are some of us that come to these conclusions because we're governed by the, the word of God. And there's others of us that come to these conclusions because it's just 
it, it's too hard to work out our feelings. When, when it feels like the right thing to do, we're, we're governed by that, some of us in United Methodism. And I've listened to the insights of some progressive leaders who have leaned heavily on Acts 15 to support their arguments uh, about sexuality in particular by suggesting that they, in this analogy, they are the new Peter, they are the new Paul, and they are the new Barnabas, and that makes us the new Pharisees. Uh, that's a common trope. If you're not aware, that's what they're saying about you out there. Uh, there are obviously a few problems with this analogy. The first is, uh, I think, patently obvious that Acts 15 statement on inclusion included certain exclusions, um, uh, including the obvious one on uh, sexual immorality. I mean, there's that. There's that. The... <laughs> the uh, the, the second issue is more important than the first. And the issue is that um, the, the point of the Jerusalem Council was to deal with who can be saved. And, and asking who can be saved is a different thing than asking, you know, how, how do we teach sexuality to our children in ways that honor God? It's a different thing to say who can be saved than it is to say who can be married within the church in a way that honors God. It's a different thing to say who can be saved than it is to you know, say who can be ordained to lead the church. Those are different questions. I don't know anyone, I haven't met anyone at this gathering or at any gathering like this who believes in their heart of hearts that LGBT people can't be saved. That's not the issue for us. It's never been the issue for us. In fact, I know some of y'all's churches are like mine. You have more LGBT people who are faithfully trying to know Jesus and follow Jesus. You have more folks in that category than most of these inclusive churches will ever have because you're just giving it to the people. You're giving them the truth. You're giving it to them straight and, and, and you know, you're not watering it down. And I know, I know because I know your heart. I can, I can feel it in the room that we all are working this out with fear and trembling because we all know that we need to get this right. Because if any of us fail to do all in our power to welcome and invite and love and serve everyone, everyone, regardless of orientation or identity or anything else, if we fail to do all in our power, then we'll answer to Jesus for that one day. And so we're here to work that out in fear and trembling. And friends, whatever lies before us as Methodists, whatever the path ahead may bring, I pray that we might return to our Acts 15 roots as a church that resolves our conflicts, theological and otherwise, with Scripture as our guide. Scripture, Scripture, Scripture. Scripture over secular trends. Scripture over sentimentality. Scripture over social fads and style points. Can you imagine how energizing it would be for our church to once again be led by leaders who are humble enough to repent of their own preferences and politics and prejudices before the holy word of God. If we as leaders set that tone, if we as leaders in this new Methodist movement could simply learn this simple discipline to humble ourselves and to trust the sufficiency of scripture once again. There would be no conflict that Satan or the gates of hell could throw against us that would take us under. Nothing could have us and tear us apart. But, friends, but the moment we surrender, the moment we surrender and sideline scripture 
in favor of our feelings or our politics. We'll be right back on this path to pluralism that got us in this mess to begin with. And so, it could not have been easy for James and Peter and uh, Paul and the rest in Acts 15 to admit they'd been wrong. Nobody likes to do that. It could not have been easy for them to submit to Scripture. And just like it wasn't easy for them in Acts 15, it won't be easy for any of us in 2021. And certainly it won't be easy in the years ahead. As I said earlier, they, the people out there say some pretty nasty things about y'all. And you think that's going to go away anytime soon? Submission to scripture always comes at a cost. And the world will hate you for submitting to scripture. Some of your own family might disparage you from submitting yourself to scripture. Your Facebook friends will certainly disown you <laughs> for submitting yourself to scripture. They will call us hateful. They will call us bigots. They will call us all kinds of phobes. They'll say we're on the wrong side of history. But to quote the Apostle Paul, if it weren't, if we were trying to please men, we wouldn't be apostles of Christ. If I were trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. So we're here to glorify God and not men. We're here to, to glorify God by making disciples, not just in this nation or one nation or two nations, but every nation across this broken world because we know in our heart of hearts we know this world is full of needy people, broken people, lost people, overburdened, overbusy, overscheduled, overbooked, worn out people. And we know today, we stand convicted on one thing today, and that is that broken, worn out people do not deserve a church that is untruthful about truth. <laughs> They need a church. For as Carolyn said earlier, where truth is not a private affair. <laughs> I love it. Because while some people might say that biblical teachings on certain issues have caused all kinds of harm to all kinds of people, have you heard that you have caused harm? Raise your hand if you're a harm causer. Okay, everybody here has heard it. I can tell you from my own past. As someone who has walked in uh, on the other side for most of my ministry and most of my life, I can tell you that infinitely more harm is caused by spineless and sentimental church leaders who misrepresent the truth because they like being liked by people more than they like people loving Jesus. <laughs> Nothing causes more harm. I would know, I would know, and I stand even now, seven years later after Jesus saved my soul, I would know, and I stand in repentance, warning you against the dangers and harm of keeping the truth a private affair. So brothers and sisters, no matter what the road ahead may hold in store, may the word of God be the lamp we choose for our feet. May it light our path. May every word of it, not just some of them, 
not just the parts we like. May we be a church of one book again, a church of one bucket, not three. Because every word on every page has something to say to us. Every word on every page from Genesis 1 to Revelation 20, 22 is the word of God. May there be no third buckets here. May there just be one deep, deep well of the one true God. I look forward to the day we become a church of one book again. God bless you and thank you. Eric Huffman, what a great opportunity to meet you and to hear you speak. That was incredible. Oh, well, thank you. It was uh, really, truly a privilege, an unexpected, joyful privilege to be invited to, to come and do this and be among these folks. Now, introduce yourself to people because a, a lot of our WCA folks might not know your story. And, and so just briefly tell us a little bit about your story. We were talking about it a little bit before yeah. uh, the session today, but tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So born and raised United Methodist in Northeast Texas, um, a, a son of a, of a preacher and the grandson and great grandson of Methodist preachers. Methodism's deep in my bones. Um, I was raised in a uh, pretty progressive uh, household and I was steeped in progressivism liberal United Methodist uh, United Methodism for uh, you know all of my young life through seminary really I went to St. Paul School of Theology which is and was then a, a pretty progressive uh, Methodist seminary and and so I just I was awash in that world and and um, learned some good things in that world, you know. Uh, what I didn't learn was just the necessity of surrender to Jesus and a personal relationship with Jesus based on his grace and, and forgiveness of my sin and um, his atoning sacrifice and all these fundamental things of Christianity that, that I'd missed out on. Um, and I think that's what resulted in a 13-year period in my life where I was not a believer at all. Uh, I'm not sure I would call myself a fully-fledged atheist, but I was certainly agnostic at best. Um, however, during that time, I also pursued ordained ministry in the United Methodist Church. So I became, uh, uh, in Missouri, um, an ordained pastor and the UMC ordained elder, uh, even though I didn't really believe, I didn't at all believe in the fundamentals of, of the Christian faith. I just was about using the church as a vehicle for social justice causes. Wow. And then you had an experience in the Holy Land, you mentioned. I did. In 2013, I went to the Holy Land to, my mission with this trip was to explore the plight of Palestinians and the evils of the Zionists. Um, while I was over there, I also had some opportunities to do the footsteps of Jesus stuff that everybody does over there. And my life completely changed. It wasn't all at once. I mean, the, some of the, there were cracks in the foundation of my worldview already, but then one thing after another that I saw in the Holy Land began to change that. But Capernaum is where it really it all changed. Um, if there was one day, it was that day in Capernaum where I realized that the first Christians knew Jesus personally, their family and friends of his. And they were devout Jews who had been taught their whole lives that no one, no man could be God. No man could be worthy of worship. And yet they were very clearly worshiping Jesus in the first century, not just as testified in scripture, but the walls of that house church in Capernaum um, that they've unearthed have been dated to the first half of the first century. 
um, AD. And so these were, these were people worshiping a crucified man. These were Jews worshiping a crucified man who they knew <laughs> and whose diapers they changed. And I could not come up with any explanation for that other than um, I think the most plausible explanation, which is that Jesus rose from the dead and, and he really was who he claimed to be. And that's when everything changed for me. Wow. It's a powerful story. And having been in Capernaum many times um, and walking that you do get a sense there of of a real tangibleness that yes. that's why they call the Holy Land the fifth gospel, right? Yes. That, that opportunity to kind of be there. Absolutely. Capernaum is so special because you have the shoreline, which water sources don't move, right? So that was there where where it is now in the Bible times. And then you got the synagogue. The foundation of the synagogue is still there. And that's talked about, or at least Jairus is, and we know yeah. he worked and lived there and uh, or lived around there. And then you have that house church, which is under that spaceship looking thing they built. Right. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. And that's where the inscriptions on the walls are that very few people know about, but everyone should because yeah. it's, it's, it's extra biblical outside the Bible evidence for the worship of Jesus in the first half of the first century. So changing gears a little bit, you, you talk today about resolving conflict and I, I love the, the four points to identify the issue at hand, to listen to those on the front lines to get insight, mm-hmm. to turn to the inspired word of God, and then offering clear instruction. Yeah. And as you think about where we're at with the denomination and where we're going, uh, how do you see us working through this in, in, a, in a short way? I mean, you talked some about it in your talk, but, but what are some ways you see us working through this well, and what do we need to do better? Yeah, I'm not sure today's talk applies to getting out of the quagmire we're currently in, but I hope it applies to uh, charting our course going forward. Um, I think, as we all know, that good old Wesleyan quadrilateral has uh, (laughs) not always done us a lot of favors, and it's not something that, as it's been utilized, that, that John Wesley himself would agree to. And even Albert Outler, who, you know, supposedly right. came up with it, has has repented. <laughs> and so because he's seen how it's been misused. And so I offered this um, sort of plan of action when we face conflict as a, an alternate uh, alternative uh, quadrilateral <laughs> to identify the issues and seek and listen to insights and then take those insights to Scripture, the inspired word of God, before we offer our instruction. It's just a way of hopefully getting back to this place where it's fine if you feel a certain way. It's fine if somebody got their feelings hurt or if somebody had a bad experience or, you know, it's fine if, if you think this might be the case, but let's take all of that based on this issue we're facing to scripture first and let's filter it all through scripture. And we might find some new insights that way, you know, Peter and Paul and, and James and in Acts 15 found uh, and decided upon a new insight. It was brand new, this idea that Gentiles could be Christians without being Jews first. Um, and they admitted it, but they only did that because they found evidence for it in Scripture. And so I pray that as we go forward, Scripture will be our guide. How we get out of this quagmire with, you know, the existing United Methodist Church, I don't know, a lot of prayer, <laughs> a lot of prayer. And I think the last word actually um, from from Brian Collier was more apt and on point there where he said, we, we have to embody this and be people of peace and not just say we want to be, we want to have peace. We have to embody peace. I think that might be the best word I heard today Yeah, about the, that. The, the, the other thing that I was thinking of as you were speaking is 
that in Acts 15, everyone sitting in that room agreed that Scripture was the source they needed to go to. And so when they talked about its authority in their lives, of course, they had, they had been with Jesus as well, who is, you know, the embodiment of that word. Yeah. But they did have an agreement around yeah. the authority of that in their lives. As, as Jews, they would, have, they would have seen that as a common thread. We don't really even have that no, now. we don't. And I can tell you very clearly, as someone who's, who was in that world on the left of United Methodism for a long time, that, that it is on the inside of that world, it's worse than it seems on the outside because there's just a constant effort. I'm overgeneralizing here, and I don't mean to, but I've seen this so often, a constant effort to disparage Scripture, uh, explain it away, um, apologize for it, you know, um, discredit it. Paul didn't really write Second Timothy, so we don't have to listen to what that says about women. You know, so all this kind of um, tiptoeing around. We don't have to do that to get the answers, the the, the truth. But um, but when our politics and our feelings come first, then that's what we do. So I don't know what you do in a room full of people who, if you told them the Bible says this clearly, it wouldn't matter <laughs> to them other than you know try your best to not. Try your best to, in Paul's words, be blameless. I love the word blameless. And not allow your character, the, the, you know, the, um, the bad parts of your character, the, the human element of your character to shine through in your actions so that the opposition can have something to use against you. Be blameless and be a person of peace, like, like uh, Brian Collier said just now. And, and I think that's the best we can hope for. Church of one book and one bucket. <laughs> and I love the idea of not just a bucket, but a deep, deep well yeah. that, that we draw from. Yeah, and one so well. really great, great words. And I really thank you, Eric, for taking a little bit of time. Tell people how they can uh, follow you and uh, get connected to the yeah. stuff that you're doing. So um, I lead a church called The Story. You can find it at thestory.church. I have a podcast called Maybe God. You can go to maybegodpod.com. Find me on Twitter. I like to tweet and get in arguments with people on Twitter. So I'm uh, at Eric the story, E-R-I-C, the story on Twitter. And I'd love to, uh, to be friends and, and uh, to follow you all back. So I hope you can find me there. We'll make sure that we put those in the show notes and thank so you. that people can follow you. I look forward to reading um, um, some of your stuff. And, and just really thank you for a great, a great talk today. Thank you so much. It's, it's really an honor. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for joining me for this edition of Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. I encourage you to send us your comments or questions at podcast at wesleyancovenant.org via email. You can also follow us on WCA Pod and find out more about the Wesleyan Covenant Association at wesleyancovenant.org. Make sure that you leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. It does help drive traffic to us so that more people can hear some of these great interviews and, and discussions that we're having about the new Global Methodist Church that is emerging. I look forward to seeing you back here next time on Holy Conversations. Have a great week.